Good morning. This is Jen Parker here for our next episode of Just and Polite. I'm joined by a very famous cranberry virgin, aka Anna Houghton. Um, Harry is also here. He actually um, demanded that he be present for this podcast. Anna, uh, welcome to your very first podcast with your mama. Thanks. How are you? I'm pretty good. So my belly hurts a little bit. Your belly hurts? You're a little mm-hmm. bit nervous about... No, I don't know about nervous. It's just that I, every time I'm home, I drink these sugary drinks, <laughs> and I don't drink them out very often elsewhere. It hurts my belly. So you, your sister, and your brother, um, when did we first... When did Aroma Joe's first come on the scene in South Berwick? I seem to remember it being while Aaron was still playing baseball. Because they had styrofoam cups back then. It was old school. Yeah. But it was early on. So he's... It was a phenomenon. <laughs> Aroma Joe's came on heavy and strong. And actually, Aaron played baseball with one of the um, founder's son. Mm-hmm. One of the McKenna boys. Mm-hmm. And I think he since has gone on to major leagues. There you go. And is playing baseball for them. I wish I could remember his name right now. Because of Aroma Joe's. Mm -hmm. So first, Aaron started drinking them. Was Mm -hmm. it the Rush? Yeah, he was definitely into that. He likes sugary drinks. So what is an Aroma Joe's Rush? It's a a bootleg can of energy drink branded by Aroma Joe's and some flavor syrup. And I'm pretty sure there's some fizzy soda water in there, something to top it off, and some ice. And then not um, too good for you, whatever. When did you start? So Aaron's Aaron's seven years older than you are. Mm. So when he was in high school, you were still in. Oh gosh, you were you were in elementary school and the next step up at Great Works, which is fourth and fifth. Mm -hmm. So when did you start drinking Aroma Joes or rushes? (laughs) Oh, rushes! I think I held off till high school, but then in high school I had one like every single morning. But I was definitely drinking coffee before then. And then now Libby's in high school and she's drinking them. Mm, yeah, Libby's Libby is like ten times ten times the consumption that I have of these things. Is she more than once daily? Sometimes. I know sometimes. <laughs> so does it give you a high? No, it just makes you really like whatever coffee does to you times ten. And then it just you rubs you up and, and then, then you fall down. You don't feel good. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome home yeah, and back yeah, to the feeling, <laughs> crashing from the rushes. I remember it well. So um, today we have a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to have you here and that you're open to doing this. Of course. Um, I lost you to Vancouver, British Columbia six years ago? Five. Five years Five ago. Years ago. Uh, you had demonstrated really early on being able to pick up um, first it came with music lyrics you just had this almost quasi photographic memory of uh, lyrics um, facts and history science definitions I remember you espousing um, definitions of theories that I didn't even know existed when you were in middle (laughs) school you would just be like shouting them out from back in the backseat in the car and from there uh, middle school your language gift kind of started popping out we had some trips to Quebec and Montreal Mm -hmm. and then in high school I remember a teacher recommending to you that you go to MIT to study language Mm -hmm. um, linguistics and you said what 
You oh, were not down with that. I wasn't down with it. And I didn't actually know what linguistics was, I don't think, either. But I think that if if that story is true, which I don't remember it. You don't remember that? Saying, I was a proud mama no, when that came out. Them, MIT. Them saying the word linguistics, even if I didn't get down with it at first, definitely did something. Because that was probably the first time I heard that word. And that ended up being my major for two years and my minor um, that I have in my diploma. So, I think at the time, linguistics for me, because I would... Now knowing what it is through your studies and how you describe it, I thought it just meant you spoke a lot of different languages. Yeah, which is what a lot of people think it is. But linguistics is not that. It's a, it's a more systemic study of language. So it looks at language as the system that it is, as a living thing, and how we use it as a social function, or how it can be weaponized, or how it has been over time, who's been excluded from it. It really takes in a lot of social and political factors in the language as well. Does it move into humanities and anthropology, mm-hmm. or also totally. history, there's languages sociology? That, yeah, there's languages that have, for all intents and purposes, disappeared. We don't like to say dead in linguistics. Well, I took Latin in high school. I feel like that's dead as a spoken language. Totally. And and I think the reason we don't want to say dead is because we recognize that language is inherently through the vessel of humans. So by calling a language dead, you're therefore calling all the humans that speak it dead, which isn't necessarily true all the time. Um, And it can be damaging to revitalization of the language. So we don't call them dead. What do we call them? Dormant. <laughs> Dormant languages. They're sleeping. And should a descendant of a speaker wake up one day and want to learn the language and teach it and propagate it throughout their new generation, they totally can. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't call it dead, because there's still descendants of people who spoke those languages that are alive. So oddly enough, mm-hmm. there's a real-life connection to this in that when I traveled to Mexico a few times... Mm-hmm. Um, and went to Chichen Itza and in the jungle and met people of the, the Mayan mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. I remember a tour guide speaking and sharing some Mayan conversation with us. And, you know, learning about the Mayan civilization, middle school and high school, it was, we were taught that it was it's dead. Ancient, right? We that's, weren't taught yeah. that it was dormant. And that's semantics. And It's the whole thing. That's That's what happens with a lot of indigenous peoples and cultures and languages. We're taught that they are wiped out and wiped out and they're archaic and they're things of the past, which we can study, but that's just not true. Well, and so just recently your brother has met someone Mm -hmm. that she is fluent in Mayan. Yeah, it's her first language. It's her first language and I think it's the only language her mom speaks, Mm -hmm. which so that, that's Mm -hmm. impressive and um, also I think a gift to our family. Totally, yeah. It's a gift to the world to, yeah. have, to have young speakers of languages that were threatened for a long time. All right, so when you were in middle school, hmm. you started speaking French, and mm-hmm. was that the only language? I'm I think in Spanish. I did Spanish. You in did some school. Spanish. I did the, the usual. I remember you flipping your phone into French, or yeah, like. My phone is still in French. So that anything that's on your screen is in yeah, French. It's, a, it's good immersion. And I was just like, my brain does not operate that mm-hmm. way. And I was just, I remember thinking, sheesh, that's pretty impressive. But there were a couple trips we took to old Quebec in mm-hmm. Montreal because you wanted to practice speaking mm-hmm. Canadian French. Because mm-hmm. you could also speak 
Parisian French. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just what's normally taught in school systems in, in American public school, but I figured because we lived so close to the border and there's another version of French that exists, you know, and I already speak one, I may as well just go and see if I can access and tap into My favorite story is, though, you wanted to go to French-speaking camp. Mm-hmm. And you came back speaking Spanish yeah. fluently. That's just how it works. You know, <laughs> but, language is, language is it's, it's, it serves function, right? And so if all the people I met didn't speak French, they spoke well, Spanish. Well, who did you meet? So the funny thing is, if you were caught not speaking French, you mm-hmm. got red carded. So I think I knew at that point you were a little bit of a rebel rouser, that you <laughs> could like fly under the radar and not align specifically with like... Mm-hmm. The program at hand. The program or yeah. the syllabus or what was expected. Because what I expected. discovered quickly is that we were all there, quote unquote, to learn French. But actually... Well, first of all, say who we are. We as in a bunch of kids. A bunch of like 14-year-olds from all over the world in Quebec. And a lot of them were from Colombia and Ecuador. And that was a lot of friends that I made. But we were all there, quote unquote, to learn French. But what we were actually there to do was to just have a new experience and and to make new connections yeah, and I think we all understood that we wanted to learn French and French was of importance and I did learn a lot of French but we were also social beings and young teenagers and wanting to relate to each other so I definitely picked up on a lot more Spanish because I wanted to be included but you picked that after out. a week you came home and you could just have blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you like and for me watching that gift in you evolve it always perplexed me because I, you make, when we visit places that speak another language or have different dialects, you, you are intent on not letting me speak, <laughs> right? Well, since the, uh, the last time we went somewhere where they spoke a different language, which was in Quebec a long time ago, but. Because yeah. I, for whatever reason, I don't have that gift hmm. that I can articulate the yeah. dialect or is it tone what is it like I can't no, roll my R's I think that there I mean if you're asking what <laughs> what comprises someone sounding native in the language yes or not, like how can you do it and then factors. I can't why is that well maybe because I mean look at the linguistic if I went into linguistics that means I must have understood at least in a in a small way on my own that language is more holistic than the words you say and in linguistics what we learn is the thing that distinguishes quote-unquote native speakers and non-native speakers is oftentimes more about prosody and how they... But I don't know, even know what prosody means. It's like the, your, your intonation, your inflection, the flow of your words, the flow of your sentence, where you raise your voice, where you lower your voice. Things like that are way more important than the actual and words you, you know or use. From an early age, with how you were able to hear songs for the first time or even on piano you were able to pick up and play by ear you seem to have a natural ability for all of that like it seemed to just I think it's mimicry happen you're a little mimic I think I, I think I'm a little like I'm a little I think that's my middle child you know is just blending into chameleon my sur- yeah a little chameleon blending into my surroundings and picking up what I can when you were a cheerleader you became a cheerleader yeah it's like I think language isn't too dissimilar from that in my mind. So, but your ability to learn languages, speak languages, in high school you taught yourself sign language because? I did sign language. Well, 
because I thought it was cool, but, but also because I, I had a customer at Dairy Queen who I believe was deaf or hard of hearing, and he used sign language, and I, I mean, I don't know if it was because of that, but that was something coexisting, and I wanted to learn and communicate with that customer, because it was really small, it was really small town type Dairy Queen and very, like, and the traffic regular circle. customer base, you know, so... I wanted to engage with him. I, I learned a bit of Italian and a bit of Russian and a bit of Korean, but Korean was the only one that I stuck with through university, but I only did it for the first year. But Korean you took on as an independent mm -hmm. study in high school. Yeah, all of those were independent studies because I had extra periods at, through high school, through whatever gifted and talented program. So you left Marshwood not you left Marshwood having an understanding and ability to converse in how many languages oh, at least on a basic level on a basic level like three or four I, I don't consider myself to be like very proficient in most any of those um, but I definitely was pretty good at French That's you could have a thing. conversation in French mm -hmm. Spanish mm -hmm. sign language Meh, maybe Korean I'd say French French Spanish Korean in English. Korean, in English, yeah. Um, but Korean, I mean, did it in Vancouver, proved to be for a whole year. It, yeah, I, I think that's kind of when I, my, my language and my linguistics um, pursuits kind of declined was after that class because I well, kinda, you Well, yeah. I mean, I was coming from small town, middle of nowhere you know, South Berwick, where everyone is white and no one actually speaks Doesn't Korean. Doesn't mean nowhere, no one it's still actually... somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Shelter. It's like in, in comparison to the metropolis that I was in, you know, me speaking Korean in South Berwick is a lot different than me speaking Korean in a giant city where, you know, 100,000 people speak you Korean. You being a quarterback star of exactly. a That's small town football team as opposed to trying to get into the NFL. Yeah, D1, whatever. It's what happens to everyone that is quote-unquote gifted and talented in high school. In a small goes, town. That, in a small town that goes to a university and then gets there and says, wait a minute, everyone here is that kid. <laughs> oh, or, God, I'm not that special anymore. No. I need to figure it out. What do I do? So somehow you found UBC, like after you said no way to MIT, like I remember then you... I didn't want to, I didn't want to be super academic. I didn't want to... But then after mm -hmm. MIT, there was a uh, high school teacher that suggested McGill. So that mm -hmm. sent you on a whole different trajectory of college. Because that gave me the idea that I could go out of the U.S., which I didn't really consider before that point. Because I didn't travel a ton growing up outside of the U.S. We oh, my God, when you just said that, I was no, like, no, no. we I traveled a ton. That's why I added the caveat. We, we did not go outside you of the U.S. You traveled how much for cheerleading? A lot. A lot. I mean, traveling. More than for, one trip yeah, a year. Yeah, of course. Um, but that's a different thing too, because we're going, we're making the trek, but then we're staying in a hotel and we're going to this With big all the same center, cheerleaders, all the same people. We're not all actually the faces in the city that we are in, you know, yeah. we're not engaging with the people that are there. So I don't, you know, it's, we traveled, but it's not like I traveled and I walked around town and spoke different languages. And like, no. And I think that's when we made those trips to Canada, mm -hmm. the three of us with Libby, like that was what I could do at the time to give you that exposure that yes. I knew you were like craving. Yeah. Or when we would curious. go to New York City, like yeah, I was curious. You definitely 
when I you would walk ahead of us in New York City and you were in middle school mm-hmm. at the time, I, I could definitely tell it was you were resonating with the beat. Like yeah. you felt comfortable and self assured. Felt I just felt excited. I think I like started to I like I said, I was just curious obviously because I had a lot of different pursuits throughout high school and middle school and I think I realized that that curiosity should extend to the world around me as well. And then someone mentioned McGill, and then I was like, oh. And then we got to McGill in the worst driving conditions of my mm-hmm. life. Well, mm-hmm. except for our second trip across country yeah. to to get your car yeah. to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, white knuckling mm-hmm. in an ice storm, stopping every five minutes on the highway to de-ice our windshield wipers. Yeah. Yep. We, not, good. <laughs> not good, but one of, but one of the most memorable trips with you and Libby. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I feel like there's so much to cover in this podcast. We're oh not going to get there. So somehow, we're, going, we're still on my life story right now. I don't know. Well, so let's skip ahead. We're just gonna we're just gonna throw. Skip. So you now flash forward five years later. Yep. You're a graduate of UBC, which I thought yeah. at the time was just another state school, until yeah. you're like, mom. I'm not saying I can't do it, but the pace and the amount of academic work is burying me. And I was like, mm-hmm. Anna, it's just a state school. You're a smart no. cookie. And then so I Googled UBC and found it was one of their top universities mm-hmm. in the country. And then I was like, it's a pretty big holy deal. shit. Yeah. And you never alluded to the fact that it was a big deal you got accepted. I didn't know. You didn't know? The funny thing is you applied to to two schools. schools. You applied to UBC. And Simon Fraser, which is the fallback school in Vancouver. Is it a community school, college? No, it's it's another, like, full-blown university, but it is definitely, it has a higher acceptance rate and lower prestige. And, and the, so I it was just your, kind of put all my eggs in one basket for no reason. I don't know what I was but thinking. But Simon Fraser was your plan B. And I didn't get into Simon Fraser. <laughs> you <laughs> got into... Funny. UBC. I got into UBC, but not Simon Fraser. Didn't even apply to McGill. So we we end up bringing you there, mm-hmm. right, into this big city, and yeah. like, how how fast was it, or how quick did it happen? Did you realize you weren't in Kansas anymore? Oh, that God, you weren't so the fast. smart person? So fast, it hit me like a truck. I, my first year was really hard. I did not make a lot of friends. I was very anxious, and I I was yeah. I got there and. I just like it was pre-COVID it was, the year before yeah, COVID right, year before COVID and it was like but even down to this down to the like you know human to human aspects like I was coming from a place where you can walk down the sidewalk and probably not bump into someone for about three minutes to five minutes if you know depending on the time of day but then I was all of a sudden on a campus where there's what like a hundred thousand people there all, all said and done with with staff and everything at any given time and oh i always thought it, i would say people. it's seventy thousand, or is that students or close yeah, to seventy thousand students, students. Probably, but i'm saying like staff faculty you know like because those are people too and you're in people that you're seeing throughout the day so and ubc so is a beautiful campus beautiful. like when i'm not overwhelmed when i go there like i feel like there's so much green space mm. And that the way, in fact, the way the whole city's designed, it's mm-hmm. really, like, thoughtfully done. Like, I felt more overwhelmed, like, at UMO than I did at mm-hmm. UBC. Just the way that it's designed yeah, and how close the buildings are together. But, like... Um, it was a hard transition. I did, yeah. It was a hard transition. But we, we went to visit 
prior mm-hmm. we took a trip out there and you there was something you seemed like you just knew you were going to be there like you were mm-hmm. excited for the college tour mm-hmm. we went i remember in the rose garden you were just beaming oh yeah when we when we took our trip there i felt very excited because i i was also feeling at the end of a lot of the things that i cared about in high school and kind of looking for what was going to be next and I think it was opportunistic that I go there because and see all that right after graduating or right before graduating because it just gave me a different perception of what my life could look like if I allowed it to and I had no idea what it was actually going to look like once my life was there but I was just looking at the people that I was seeing and picturing myself there and I just felt for it so let's talk about so you're home on this mm-hmm. trip. This trip is a little bit different than past trips um, in the fact that you're going to be, along with other locally talented musicians, mm-hmm. be performing at an open mic yep. tomorrow in yep. South, in the big metropolis <laughs> at South Berwick. Yeah. Um, so somewhere along the lines, you became a musician and yeah. artist, and not that... I don't know, it became is the wrong word. I feel like I stepped into it. Because I think that I always... You like played you, guitar yeah. at, at the farm. Mm-hmm. And I was always inclined towards those things. But I think there was a lot of factors that led to me sort of suppressing that within you myself. You didn't lean into it. like you... I did not lean into it. I think I was, I was comparative of myself to my best friend at the time. And I felt very... I felt very inadequate in my artistic ability. And then my younger sister, Libby, as well, was extremely... She's gifted. But she's, she's like deserted like child. Yeah, like super talented portraits of animals and just... Self-taught. All of you guys are self-taught. self-taught. And so I think that in my narrow mind of, of a child, I was like, okay, I can't be that because two people I know are already that, and I have to be a different thing. But you are also incredibly talented as a dancer, like... Coach Lori put you front and center in like dance routines in front of thousands of people. You were point, is it called point dancer? Yeah, and it's it's just about expression. So I think in in that way you're right. Like I did cheer for a very long time, and even though I didn't super resonate with it, it, at the end of the day, like I could have done any sport that was a lot less performative and expressive, but cheer is a very expressive and performative sport, which is, you know, artistic in its own way. And I, I think the fact that you were part of a... A team that for three minutes was performing in these huge crowds all yeah. over the country. I mean, I feel like that was a step towards what you're mm-hmm. doing now, and yeah, in a strange, way. maybe a yeah. little bit disconnected way or not. Yeah. Like it now, we can connect the dots yeah. and say, "Oh my God, that makes sense." Totally, it feels like an evolution from that, which makes sense to me because I don't, I don't really feel like it feels right in my mind when I'm like, all of a sudden I'm just like becoming. An it's artist like and becoming the overnight a success stories of it's bands, right? No, really there's true. ten years yeah. of playing and practicing in <laughs> and a garage like, and or singing in my room and recording myself and listening to it and deleting it and listening to it and deleting it and playing. You know, like a lot. A lot of it was just to myself for a long time. So you got involved in got an in, organization yeah. called BVP yeah, early Final on. Project was a, it, it is a live music organization at UBC. Um, and when in my first year, they have a they have a private jam space in the student life building, where you can access it and play whatever instrument you have. You can sing it. It's fully furnished. It has mics, everything. So I used that in my first year, and then in my second year with COVID, I um, 
joined as an executive, but it was digital, it was virtual, whatever. Um, but I was just dipping my toes in the water because I thought it was a really cool club and I wanted to get involved. And then I stayed with it, and then I was the president in my last year. Madam President! Yeah, I was the president, <laughs> and we had a really good year. We had a really successful year. We, are, we have a student festival every year called Goose Hunt, where like 12 bands play. Um, and it went really well. It, there was like 500 people there. It was awesome. So I was involved with music throughout the entirety of UVC in one way or another. And then you then you just happened to show up on the cover of the university magazine. <laughs> yeah, I did. It's a little bit of yeah. a Forrest Gump it's funny. moment. Like yeah. out of 70,000 kids, they pick you. No, it's because, it's because I think it was my last, and during my last year at UVC, I was definitely in that mindset a lot of the time. Of like, if not now, when? Like, and so I would see stuff like, we're doing an open casting call for da 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 like friends music videos, whatever it was, and I would just always say yes because I was like, <laughs> why not? Like I'm not gonna be in this context ever again. So probably. there's some magic in saying yes. Mm, totally. There's a lot of magic in saying yes. So when you're saying yes, you're opening yourself. You're to opening windows yeah. and doors. When one of my favorite memories of the farm is the times that everybody was home and Kyle would be playing guitar and then you'd pick up your guitar mm -hmm. and even Aaron would pick up his guitar. And it seemed like more times than not that the house would be filled with this wonderful music and camaraderie of um, musicians connecting us all. Mm -hmm. You know, like so many memories in the kitchen with you just walking around strumming your guitar. We might be arguing, cooking dinner, mm -hmm. it didn't matter, but it was always that mm -hmm. sweet background yeah. music that, and I think now not having anyone in the house that plays guitar, mm -hmm. I miss I miss that a lot. Yeah, it fills a it fills a certain space that's hard to occupy by, you know, just playing music from your laptop or something. There's something different about about watching people, and hearing the music that's coming out of their body. It's really special. So I I've added mm. all of your songs to all of my playlists. <laughs> um, they're played at the store quite frequently, oh, <laughs> and it, I. It, you live three. You still live in Vancouver. You live mm -hmm. three thousand miles away, and for some reason, having your music on Spotify and being able to access it, like, and the other thing I do, you're gonna think I'm crazy, mom, but I bring my phone in the shower every morning, and I start every day with your first three songs. Oh my god! <laughs> and it's funny because it's like I like I listen back to those recordings, and I have a much different feeling about them because. I'm the one that made them, and obviously I have different ideas for how they're going to look on the album that I'm working on. And those singles that I have on Spotify aren't necessarily going to be like, you know, they're not necessarily what I envision those songs yeah, sounding but like or whatever. So it's the same thing. The how long do you remember me writing every day? Forever. Forever. And mm -hmm. sometimes, like, some of my earlier things that I've written will pop up and I'll read it and absolutely cringe yeah, <laughs> because it's, it's like just, it's that's it's 20 years ago yeah. that I began this this mm -hmm. journey of writing and you know just like anything else the more that you practice the more that you do the more that you grow yeah. your your craft or your talent or your skill expands mm -hmm. but we have to start somewhere of course and I think that's what I've realized like being on the sidelines of music for so long, or live music specifically. Through so Blank long, Vinyl. Through Blank Vinyl, as is, is I graduated, and I was like, 
well, there's a big hole in my life right now, and I can either, like, you know, ignore that it's there, or I can, you know, The whole coming from not being surrounded or in the midst of musicians or live performances. Yeah, and I decided I'd, I'd rather try and see what I can make. And I've just been making, I've been writing a lot of music and trying to I love the sound bites when they come in. When you send me just a little oh, snippet yeah. Yeah. of something you're working on. and yeah. um, So uh, the number one question I get asked, do you have any idea what it is? Where did Cranberry Virgin come from? Oh, and then also, <laughs> what does it mean? Well, it's funny because I'm going to say this, and it's you can tell this to everyone you meet, but it does not really mean a whole lot of anything other than the fact that I was sitting in my bed one night trying to think of something because I didn't want to use my name. I felt too insecure to use my, my real name. And I was trying to think of something. And then I thought about, I don't know, I just started going through my life. I thought about um, cran grape juice. At the <laughs> Wait, Pages the Sue Page always had cran grape juice. Yeah. And you guys loved it. And then I was thinking it. about cranberry. And I was thinking about cranberry juice. And then I was thinking about how I was a bartender and how people would order virgin cranberry on the rocks which i always thought was funny because it's just like ordering a little cup of juice they ordered virgin cranberry they They just didn't say cranberry they wouldn't say cranberry juice they always say virgin cranberry on the rocks and i always thought that was funny but then obviously putting it if you if you inverse that cranberry virgin then it's it's like cranberry is like a adjective and virgin becomes a subject so that does mean funny. something so well, that's it's, like it's, it it's, doesn't mean a whole lot of anything yes, it but it's does. like a little play on words it's that stringing together moments that you know were not pinnacle in your life but like you guys spent a lot of time at sue's house like sue's kids yeah. spent a lot of time at our house like yeah. when we were building that business and you we became almost like a miniature family unit yeah so i think i was just picking up on a lot of different and then bartending was another survival <laughs> yeah, role for yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, I'm really, I think I'm good at it, but it's, it was very. Restaurant yeah. work is, um, we worked together for summer at yeah. Martingale Wharf when you, before you went to college. Mm-hmm. And you, there's two ways to go in restaurant. You can either work your ass off or you can do what you need to do to get by and not mm-hmm. get fired. Mm-hmm. Those are the two paths in restaurant work, mm-hmm. I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I are the type that we went above and beyond, mm-hmm. and it's exhausting, and yeah. it's demanding, and you learn, I think you learn a lot about yourself, but probably you learn more about humanity as oh, a whole. Yeah, totally. It's like, it's a little microcosm, a bar is, of, of just every different social function in the world. You just have people that come and sit there by themselves all day and yell mean things into the air when no one's <laughs> listening to them. And, you know. Or, you know, I always think of, like, Willy Wonka and, like, Daddy, I want a Oompa Loompa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, you know, that mentality that... It's a lot of entitlement. And, a lot of, and there's a lot of dissonance from where the thing they're eating or drinking is coming from as well sometimes. And, but even among the staff, you know, there's social hierarchy. And yeah, <laughs> but I think as far as clientele, it's usually always the opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You have, like, the people that demand a certain thing from the restaurant that's above and beyond what the restaurant can deliver. Mm-hmm. And then you have the clientele that has, like, the knowledge of what it means to be 
an employee of a restaurant mm -hmm. and they like accept far less than they should. Of course. You yeah. know what I mean? They'll never send food back even mm -hmm. if it's raw. Mm -hmm. They'll over tip even if it took an I. hour. I think that's you and I. You and I. <laughs> hey, can you pick up your guitar? And I'm putting you on the spot, but I think one of the first times that I knew you might be headed in a musical direction is when you played the cover of Billy Joel song that I love. Oh. <clears throat> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, yes. Like I, I can't remember lyrics to save my life or even titles of songs, but yet you say listening to my music growing up, we were on our way to, um, across country during COVID and you surprised me with a playlist and it was all the songs you would listen to while we were in the car. You called it mommy's playlist or something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the songs I didn't remember, yeah, <laughs> like, but, but sure once I heard once them, heard them yeah. 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 No, I think, I think that that's where a lot of my music taste comes from more than I even remember either. Cause I do play a lot of like folk music and, what, play a little bit of one song that you would, you would say comes from listening. What am I trying to say that has influenced you from the music I played? Well, I'm gonna play this one at the open mic probably, but I lost I lost my guitar tuning, so this might not be. Just play a little. <coughs> so play a glimpse. Yeah, I'll play I'll play a glimpse of one. You know what I was hoping? What were you hoping? For? I was hoping you'd sing. You have. Um, oh, I can sing. Wait, but do the song. So we were. Another time that we met, that was another pinnacle mm -hmm. part of our little family being. Our co no, a microcosm family, because our family has evolved and morphed over the years. But it always, for me, it always comes back to Aaron, you, Libby, and me is mm -hmm. the core for me. So one of the moments that I, one of the, the top three moments in my life with my children, I think now I was talking about it a little bit, is like the, the road trip you and I took to get your car blueberry, was it blueberry? Blackberry, Blackberry from Maine to Vancouver during, during, um, during COVID. COVID. And I think that's when I got to know you as an adult, yes. or I started getting to know you as an adult. The second moment was when Aaron, after eight years, decided he was going to move home. He made a huge leap of faith and a jump. And you drove solo from Vancouver to Colorado. You two picked me up at the airport. Your car, Aaron had to lay in the back. <laughs> but like on that trip, it was the three of us getting Aaron ready to drive his car back to Maine. And you came and spent time with us. and. Yeah. We were sleeping, we were sleeping on Aaron's living room floor, mm -hmm. and you played a song for me, and you sang, 
and that's what I want. I was hoping you would do a little it? bit now. Is it Vienna? It was Vienna, and I think. Let me look it up. I don't know. That's why I didn't play it immediately. Is because I don't remember. Look it up, words, and while you do that, I remember I recorded a bit of it mm -hmm. and then shared it on Instagram. It was the first time I'd shared your music, and it, it got a lot of response mm -hmm. from strangers. And I remember this one person commenting about your sweet angel voice. And like it gave me the goosebumps, and I was like, she might have, she might have something here. But this is my Vienna is kind of my song I hold on to as my theme song. Are you gonna sing a line or two? Yeah, I can sing. Okay. No, I know, I know this is your, I know this is the song you were wanting. To sing. <laughs> and just, it's you might be a little rusty. It's just rusty. not one I've played in a very long time. Will you sing it with me? No, I can't sing. That's the whole irony of all of this. I can't sing. I can't draw. You guys are much more creative than I am. Okay. I'll do. I'll do a little verse. Just for, do a verse for the people and for you. It'll make me cry. Slow down, Such a trooper. Vienna. Vienna waits for you. You know what? Um, Thank you. you know what I'm learning? Thank you very much. That line, Vienna waits for you. Um, a lot of soul searching my whole life, right? Mm -hmm. You guys have witnessed the good, mm -hmm. the bad, the ugly. I'm not always the most proud of that, but like, mm -hmm. I really am getting to the point in life that I think and believe in that whatever's meant for you won't pass you by. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like my life has been a race mm -hmm. to the finish line mm -hmm. and not always the best climate to raise a young family. And you guys were, I feel like you three were dragged through the mud on a lot of projects or community service events. Mm -hmm. I really um, asked a lot of you three. Those are good things to raise children in. Children you think see, so? Children should see community. But I think I burnt you out on community service by the time you were in middle school. Oh, I think I found my way back to it, clearly, in one way or another. What was the craziest thing I asked you guys to do in all those events or businesses? I don't know, but me and Libby dressed up as Glinda the Good Witch in a, in a munchkin from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> For a Christmas small parade. Children to be on a parade float. That's not bad, though, is no, it? No, it's not bad. It's just silly. There's so many pictures of us doing stuff that I don't even know. I think we got, one we of... We got signed up to do stuff. You, I was always signing you guys up for. Mm -hmm. I think the one that I remember most is the home run derby that I created with a team mm -hmm. to benefit the Avon mm -hmm. Walk for Breast Cancer. Mm -hmm. You guys, um, who made those? Did Kathy McComb make those little trays for you? You were selling... Yeah. We were little vendors. They put us to work. <laughs> walking around the crowd selling Cracker Jacks. Yes. What else was in there? Candy bubbles. Oh, 
I don't know. There's lots. Of, yeah, it was stuff like that. But it wasn't. But how bad. old were you? Libby was maybe Libby four. Was small. <laughs> she was a child. Was child, child labor. <laughs> but they weren't bad things. I think they were formative in ways we don't remember, and probably made us more inclined to do stuff like that, even if we don't. But I think feel we like are. each of you were less inclined to do the mandatory community service for mm -hmm. high school graduation. I don't think anyone wants to do anything in high school that is told that it's mandatory. I think that's the big thing. And is it is it really community, if service community service if it's mandated? Yeah, like you're not, are you really putting your all into that? Probably not. From your heart. From I think heart, there's probably, probably like 1% of kids in high school lean into that naturally. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about others above themselves. I think that... Um, is a so. tough time in development. Yeah. And if some it people doesn't never come naturally. There. Some people never get there, but I think that a lot of people find their way back to it because they, they as in, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting onto the other, but I'm talking about myself, obviously, like feel at, during certain life transitions, you know, like what, what's missing or something feels missing, something feels off, something feels wrong. And I think people find their way back to the idea that Oh, I'm not actually an isolated creature. You know, I live in a network. I live in a community every day. If even if I don't open my eyes to it, I can choose to engage in it. Or if I choose to shut it out, <laughs> close the door, and see which makes me feel better. I mean, a lot of people go through that process. But and I think even myself as an adult, like being so much community community centered, even to like creating Kids Day when mm -hmm. you guys were little, that mm -hmm. was another big one. Yeah. But like they're community oriented person. There are times throughout my life that that being community centered helped me get through certain times of my life. And then other times, you know, I needed to close that door and I needed mm -hmm. to like come be more I get more selfish in a way that I needed to cocoon and figure some things out for myself well, before I could the, just yeah. be wide open to what can I do for everyone they else. They say it on airplanes every single time. Put your own oxygen mask on first. If you don't, if you are not, you know, if you are not in a place where you are taken care of for the next, you know, little minute, then any efforts you make to help the people around you might just end up with both of you dying <laughs> in your one way or another. Be, your efforts are futile. Yeah, because you're not helping that person to the best of your ability and you're losing yeah. parts of yourself and trying to help them because you're not coming from a, a place of stability or understanding or intention. Um, well, so out of all three of my children, I think I resonate with each of you in very different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it's as a parent and you guys, Aaron's an adult, you're you're just into your adult years now in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. Libby's on the verge, although she thinks she's an adult, she's on the verge of becoming an actual adult. Mm -hmm. And although she's incredibly independent, I think with all of my children, the way in which I resonate most with you, and again, part of my life, you guys have never witnessed. Mm -hmm. So when I think about it, like it's from the perspective of what I've experienced and you guys may not even know about, mm -hmm. but like, watching you now and who you're meeting and the different things that you're becoming involved with off the off the beaten path that resonates with me in the respect that you know my mom used to say I was like had a forest gump kind of I was the forest <laughs> gump in business that like I would end up in black, these opportunities <laughs> yeah I would end up in these rare mm -hmm. rare moments with people larger than life or in places mm -hmm. that 
you know, you, one may never get to and had these crazy experiences um, that my other siblings haven't, you know, mm. from, you know, I was in the early days of technology, I ended up in a, in, on Malibu Beach in a mansion in a beach party with the founder of Earthlink, you know, and Danny DeVito lived next door. Or when I went to Guatemala, not Guatemala, Honduras, and mm-hmm. was in a mountain village helping a garderia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were celebrities, and a ton of celebrities when I was working for a marketing mm-hmm. firm, and we do trade shows all over the country. Mm-hmm. Like, I've had extraordinary opportunities um, and now I'm witnessing a rebirth of that through yeah, you. Like cool. you recently met this incredible human being mm-hmm. who I feel like is the beginning of a new chapter for you. And it's, it's leveraging your experiences up to this point and asking you, you know, who do you want to be as an adult? Mm-hmm. Like what are you willing to do for something bigger than yourself? Oh, yeah. Is that a good intro to your yeah, new friend? Yeah, I can talk about I can talk about Che a bit, but I I want to touch on what you just said of like it feeling like a resurgence of a, a part of your life that you're seeing again through me, which would make sense because we're genetically intertwined. But I think that what it is is like a propensity to or an, an intention to believe <laughs> in things, and even if you can't see them directly in front of you but I think that's something that you know is you know we we like to talk about believing and believing in God and believing in you know the something bigger than ourselves you know but like a lot of times people they you know they don't actually believe in their heart in the ways that make them act differently you know it's like they'll believe up to the point of like being able to stay in their comfort because you know humans want security and comfort but I think and that's not a bad thing it's not necessarily a bad thing no and it's 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 something that's societally taught as well that you know you're entitled to that even if that's not accurate which is what I kind of some are entitled to that some are entitled well that's what I'm saying I'm I'm, yeah I'm in the lens right now talking about the the place where we come from or the the circumstances we come from is I think that you know what I'm what I'm saying here is is the place where I live now. I mean, I live in I live in East Vancouver, which is in in, in Canada and North America probably is the highest population of, of well, unhoused individuals. Oh, unhoused. Yeah, in in East Vancouver, which obviously if that's not something in your immediate context that you're seeing all the time or interacting with, then you know it's it's easier to not not put your faith in something outside of yourself because you're or your immediate surroundings because you're already pretty comfortable but I think that meeting a lot of these individuals in my community and talking with them and hearing about their life stories it it does it does make me believe not only that there is a better way and that people are deserving of a lot more but also that we're a lot closer to harm's way than we think we are at all times and it's really well I think that a couple things on that topic Yes, we grew up in a white community, um, middle income. If there is a, if there is that mm-hmm. anymore, that's disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, being a single mom when you and Libby were young, um, I think offered a unique perspective for you three. Yeah. 
that, you know, on one hand, your one of your parents was incredibly financially stable and mm -hmm. could offer you, you know, the the Apple phones, mm -hmm. everything that anyone in our area had, mm -hmm. but yet half of the week you grew up with a single mom working three jobs. We struggled. Yeah. We didn't always have we food. Struggled. Yeah. And that's what I... And that I, contrast, yes. I think about, I'm going to cry, but that contrast for you too, like there was always a sense of gratitude that I knew you could leave my house mm. and then be secure. Yeah. Of course. And I think that that's something that, you know, we strive, we strive for and we're taught to strive for and, you know, it, it's... But what a weird... But I don't know if you guys, I don't know if Libby felt it. You and Aaron were most definitely aware of the yeah. contrast, I'm assuming. Yeah, and I think that the contrast is, is something that, like my friend Che says to me and talks about with me, is like that contrast is part of the reason why I feel comfortable, as she says, walking two worlds, you know. And, you, and um, perfect. That's what I was trying to say. I feel like your childhood was walking two yeah, worlds. Yeah, existing in spaces of privilege, but also while, while I'm in those spaces, not being blind to what they are, you know? And, and I think that when I was or a kid, maybe close, I was. Yeah. Like that line that some of those walk. Because it's also a part of me. You yeah. Know? And it's a part of my lived experience. And I think that that's what gives me whatever ability to participate in my community in Vancouver the way that I do. Because Vancouver is an extremely wealthy and privileged city, like you said when I first brought up Vancouver. But at the same time, on the other side of the coin, there's a lot of evil and there's a lot of despair and well, I think when I walk between them very frequently. One of our trips that we made to Vancouver at the time I was sitting on um, the Health and Human Services Committee mm -hmm. and we were considering um, we were considering but knew it would never pass is a safe drug use mm -hmm. facility in Maine yeah. um, and I there was something inside of me that wanted to vote for for the bill knowing it would never pass but also like to make progress in the direction of something takes baby steps in mm -hmm. government and mm -hmm. if no one's willing to stand up in favor of something it's a much harder climb the next term yeah um and i got i remember um so you have the speaker of the house and at the time we held ma the majority so then it was um the majority leader and the assistant majority leader I remember before the vote in committee mm. that the assistant majority leader came down to the office and pulled me aside and was essentially telling me I would not vote for it. Mm. That um, kind of laying down the law in a weird way. And this is this is part of why I was one term and done mm. um, the manhandling. Mm. And but anyways. Out of, out of due diligence, and I'm so glad we did this, like from, from the comfort of the committee, the horseshoe, imagining what a safe drug facility mm -hmm. would look like and how that would present itself in our state, mm -hmm. I, I had this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be 100% honest, I had this idyllic vision of this beautiful building with manicured lawns, and I don't know where the F this came from. And then people, being offered comfort and security at one of the lowest points of their life with the staff, you know, mm -hmm. doctors and nurses and support staff. So one of the things, that, and I can't remember what trip this was, Anna, that we went to Vancouver, and 
part of it was we were going to make our way to East Hastings mm -hmm. together. Yeah, because that's where Chinatown is. And that was our, Chinatown. both of us went there for the first time yeah. together. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what this would play out like in real world. Mm -hmm. And what, it, what did we see together? Like, what did we experience? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of things at play when you're talking about the, the housing crisis in Vancouver. And I think on the point of the safe injection site, that's a thing that exists. And let, let's remember that Vancouver is a place where nearly all drugs are decriminalized. Now that has caveats and there's possession rules and all these things, but like nearly all drugs are decriminalized and there are safe injection sites. But at the same time, these safe injection sites are run by the government of British Columbia. And the government of British Columbia obviously doesn't look too favorably on people who are poor and addicted or else we wouldn't have one of the largest unhoused populations in North America. And so when you when you are in Hastings, what you do see... But when we went for the first yeah, time, because I, you were new to this. Yeah. I was new to this. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting into that. But I also want to... I, I don't want to... I want to do justice to the things I'm talking about. Yeah. Because they're... It's people not for, a little forget, thing. People forget when we talk about things like this that they are real people. You know, pe people are real they, and they were children well, at one point. And yes. I think that's why I'm, I, I say these caveats is well, because I want to... Let know. me add to that. Like, and I think yeah. that's why I was sharing what we... I was skimming on what we went through when yeah. I was a single mom. Yeah. Is that going through that situation, like, when I had, I had to say no to certain playdates because I knew I wouldn't have enough gas yeah. to get to my jobs yeah. or get you to school. Yeah. Like, when it's at that level and you're walking that fine line of poverty or existing, mm -hmm. you, you suddenly realize it's not such a big fall from exactly. security to insecurity exactly. and being able to provide and then also exactly. needing help to mm -hmm. to get by mm -hmm. like and I think having that experience myself because like I I didn't grow up in poverty mm -hmm. we were middle income my dad was a plumber mm -hmm. we always had a, mm -hmm. a nice home food gifts mm -hmm. under the tree mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in the in insecurity so mm -hmm. finding myself there as a single mom with three little ones yeah that contrast made me realize and I still am affected by it to this day mm -hmm. is that wealth as we know it security as we know it is paper thin it's paper thin but it's 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 sold as as the end all if you're doing goal. the right things if you, if right you work things. hard you're like secure, if you're kind not, if you're yeah. and all of that honestly anyone, I've anyone, always worked yeah. hard my whole life that's not that's not your golden ticket no. I worked hard three jobs and we didn't have enough food for the table sometimes yeah it's hard but we in order to feel like we can keep our security we build these walls of apathy you know and we build these walls specifically and shut out our homeless and or unhoused neighbors and because you know, we feel afraid we feel afraid that we subconsciously know we're closer to that than we are to being a Jeff Bezos of the world, you know? But I also feel like the fear is systemic of issues or situations or experiences that can't be fixed. Mm -hmm. We'll never, we'll never fix mental health. Mm -hmm. We'll never fix poverty. We'll never fix abuse. Mm -hmm. we're, those are some of these things at the lowest level of energy or actions mm. by or through humanity yeah. don't have 
a solution. They don't have solutions, no. But what I learned in legislating mm -hmm. and learned in being on the horseshoe to thousands of hours of testimony mm -hmm. on these different topics, the one thing that we can afford is a certain respect yeah, to each individual. <laughs> we had a dog escape. Um, well, that's what I was just going to say, is, is, is there's no solution per se necessarily, because there's no perfect solution to anything, but there is an empathy crisis. You know, we, you, you can be, you can relearn and learn and tap into your empathy with these circumstances in order to come up with generative and productive ways to continue interacting with them and not just in those ways to not just be well put put this group of people in prison and never think about them again and you know because that's something we like to do because we feel like our <laughs> Harry go 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 lay down um well I mean Anna we can let me just close that we could spiral this podcast in like a countless yeah. countless directions because like even putting putting people in prison right that's become a business unto itself it like it's privatization an of an prisons is now a, a corporate industry mm -hmm. where money can be made and i think that's a different discussion and that you know but all of this ties together um and we're probably way over an hour <laughs> i'm guessing um, let me just say, you, you met this incredible person mm -hmm. who has devoted her life. And I think we probably need another podcast just on Che yeah. and your adventures with Che. But we should just, all of this ties into the original reason why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. Well, I can, I can speak on her briefly. And I want to, I want to preface this by saying like, and the, let me just, can I just talk for like two minutes? Just, yeah. But I, I just, I want to preface this by saying that there's a big, there's a big misconception and way in which people are beginning to interact these days surrounding people who are indigenous or people who live outside of the mold, whatever it is that we, you know, who some people call it the matrix, some people call it the system, whatever. You know, there's this idea that people who have lived within that their whole life meet someone who hasn't lived in that, and then all of a sudden, you know, changes their life and whatever. But genuinely, I do want to say, you know, I am no, I am no savior to Che. I am no. I am someone who is trying to learn how the world works in the most holistic way possible. And Che is someone who, you know, by spending a lot of time together, I've begun to, you know, break through and, and tap in in different ways than I ever have. And, you know, see, see, see the world for what it is outside of, of the confines of what we think it ought to be, if that makes sense. And Che is someone who I met when she was, she was working on building a tiny house behind my house. Um, she's 60, 60, in her 60s, and I, I noticed her immediately, and I, I, it was like a sunny day, and I was like, oh gosh, I don't know this person, I don't know what they're up to, I should probably say hi and see, see what's going on. And I just said hi, she was in my, 
little like backyard area because she knew someone in the house and they let her use the space and she just told me she was working on building a home for herself um and she was she was she was putting up insulation she was she had a you know a, a workbench and she was sawing pieces of plywood she's probably five feet tall and music blasting and I just had this sense in talking to her that day this is several months ago that this is someone I ought to listen to <laughs> you know like man this is someone who's who is living and they aren't living in the way that maybe we're taught that we ought to but I think that's actually for the best and I I, I found that you know she had a lot to say and I had a lot to give in terms of my listening and in terms of my patience and in terms of my because of whatever context I grew up in walking two worlds whatever you want to call it I think that I'm grateful that my instant reaction wasn't let me shun this woman she's talking nonsense you know because I a lot of things she was saying I understood deeply in myself you know when she talks about feeling insecure in her housing or feeling insecure in what she has to eat you know I, I resonated with that and so we've kind of formed this relationship but yeah she's she's this um she's this elder from a nation called Chiquitania in Bolivia um in the Amazon jungle she's traditionally a uh, shamanistic ayahuasca healer all of the matriarchs in her family have been um she was involved as a youth in a lot of political revolution at the time she fled political persecution, came to Canada um, when she was still not yet 18, and she had a whole host of hardship coming here and, and living in this space coming from where she was coming from um, and trying to enter into a system which didn't make a whole lot of sense to her because I think if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense a lot of the times. It doesn't help out people in the ways that maybe it should, and it helps out people that don't maybe need so much help sometimes and I think that that's something she was trying to navigate her whole life and obviously fell into a lot of pitfalls with that in terms of drugs in terms of homelessness in terms of poverty in terms of loss and you know but she has she has a vision because she is a person that experiences visions you know both in you know, the third eye way, but also... Why are you laughing <laughs> when you say that? No, just because just I'm looking at you, and it's funny, because this is why, like I said earlier, experiences in my life made me have a propensity to believe, and I think it's because you were someone who read my tarot when I was eight years old. Did I do that? You I, totally did. I feel as though... That crystals are on the house, and so <laughs> no, she's... No, 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 no. Let, my... me, let me... Let me yeah, I'll let just, you finish. I think compared to other kids in my community that I grew up with, I had a, I had a mother that engage with spirituality a little bit differently. But not, not like, it wasn't like to give all of the people that don't know us that listen to this, is I'm pretty like uptight. Like if yeah. you look at me, it's not like I'm no. a hippie, no, no, like no, no, no. But I'm saying loose flowing. Of course, but, the, but, but there were little bits and pieces you could agree with. Glimpses. Throughout, throughout my life that were readily accessible and were parts of my upbringing that made me have more of a propensity, like I said, to believe in things bigger than just what's in front of me. Fed to you. And what's fed to me. And I think that's why when Che and I started talking a lot, you know, 
we could really resonate and she could feel that for me. She could feel that I was listening to her and not just placating her, you or know, judging. or judging her, but actually understanding because, you know, I think that I am, I'm not extremely wealthy in Vancouver. Here? I struggle a lot. I always say you're living in poverty. I, you know, and a lot of people my age are. Vancouver has a horrific housing market and it's, it's super, super illegal. And there's lots of just really horrible things that happen to people all the time, people I'm very close to. And it's, it's messed up. And, and so I think that that, you know, my, my particular position right now coming out of college and teaching and figuring out how to you work you have two sources of income right now in a big city and i still struggle you have a full-time job and then you nanny yeah Yeah. um so i think che and i we have a lot to talk about and we have a lot to offer each other but i mean she's someone who has a vision like i was talking about before we got off track of a world that is ruled by principles of empathy and reciprocity because those are age old and those are things that are life giving rather than life taking and that's how the planet survives i mean a tree and soil you think about that interaction mm. everything is reciprocal i mean i'm coming from a geography degree as well an environmental degree so this is also how it ties in and and, and these things start to build up as worldviews in my mind is when me and chase sit and talk for hours about reciprocity and what that looks like in humans we also then talk about what that looks like when a tree is sapping water from the earth and is then going on to produce oxygen and is, you know, decomposing at the end of its life and creating layers of loam in the soil. And it, everything, everything that's ever been sustainable and will ever be sustainable is based in reciprocity. And I believe that. And that's something we engage with a lot. I think, I, I think the, the premise of reciprocity, I think, yes, but I think where it gets lost to a certain population of people is that, you know, what I struggle with is that, okay, let me back up. So when you guys were little, and I don't know if you remember this or if I'm making more of it in my own head, but parenting was tough for me because I came from a house where um, questionable tactics were used to mm-hmm. get you to behave a certain way. Mm-hmm. So emerging from that, like for me, I adopted this little saying when you guys were little and it was just love. Mm-hmm. So I remember, and I don't know if I'm making this up, but I remember if there was hitting or yelling at one another or biting or any of the usual things that come from little ones, I remember my parenting technique was to take your little hands and whisper just love. Mm -hmm. And that to me was an inroad to, hey, look, there's another way of reacting or behaving or considering. So when you talk about reciprocity, for me, I think in the world that we live in, I think that gets shunned or Mm -hmm. looked down upon because, let me just finish this thought, that what you're describing with Che with with the tree and what it takes and what it provides reciprocity yes but also more of the cycle mm-hmm. the life the full cycle mm-hmm. the the circular motion is yeah. and that relates to infinity mm-hmm. it never runs out yeah. 
So it's not that in reciprocity, I think that people get stuck on, oh, I'm constantly giving, I'm constantly mm -hmm. giving. But if you imagine that reciprocity is the, the secular, mo mm -hmm. part of the secular motion of giving and receiving, like mm -hmm. one does not happen without the other. Yeah. And I think in the smallest of ways, we limit that premise of life. Mm -hmm. And really that is life. Yes. The circle, the infinity, yeah. the never ending, ending or destroyed energy. You know, mm -hmm. like matter is never created nor mm -hmm. destroyed. Everything, yeah. everything as it is. Mm -hmm. And I think we become narrowed in our scope of thinking that mm -hmm. somehow it is limited mm -hmm. and that all of the resources, including love, including energy, including money, including natural resources, minerals, what have you, there's become like this crazy power grab mm -hmm. and hoarding situation. Mm -hmm. And your lifetime, unfortunately, you're seeing a heightened experience of it. You know, when well, I was growing up, the middle class yeah. was the greatest percent of the population mm -hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. And that has shrunk and the, and the great divide mm -hmm. is just growing where, mm -hmm. you know, there's just wealth, wealth, wealth. Yeah. And then a huge population of people just trying mm -hmm. to literally survive each day. Yeah. And we can, and we could get into, and I could get into forever, the systems in place that have created our ways of thinking that make us feel so and they're not new they're not new they're old we could talk they're about that for hours and i feel like you know but but we now have to wrap up as much yeah because we have to go like to the could, beach this could turn into a very <laughs> radical podcast of me on my soapbox which you well know, you whatever. have emerged and i've got a lot to say about this <laughs> but what i can say is that <clears throat> What I can say, and you know, what I can say is that it's becoming very clear to me, and I think it should be becoming very clear to a lot of people if they be careful with should though. Should though, should because this is a should that I I will it's stand behind. It's your should, yeah. Which I think you will stand behind, and I think conceptually most <laughs> people can stand behind. The way forward is not, is not existing in a predatory relationship with our planet and the people around us and we're a p parasitic one and seeing what we can take for our own gain and that it, that involves our interactions with people and always feeling the need to come out on top or be right or of course that's know, what i just said exactly that's yeah. not that's not we're seeing that's not the way it's the way for a very certain few but do you think that's the way that will ultimately change the course of our planet which the current course is to complete annihilation of humanity i think the planet will win out in the end of course but you know i think like look at chernobyl the the planet is reclaiming yeah, chernobyl of course. people are no longer welcome there and it's because of people's actions mm -hmm. i think ultimately if we continue on in the way that we're headed the planet will win out and humanity will die yeah. off and i'm so what i'm saying the should comes in is people should in general, and I should, and you should, and we all should, find ways back to tap into the same inherent encoded empathy that we have as a child when we are born into the world, because our entire world, when we're born, is reliant on our empathy and the empathy of people around us towards us to survive. So that's fascinating. I know you know I do podcasts and have guests from different backgrounds, mm -hmm. 
And one of the podcasts that I did, I think you listened to it, but I'm not sure if the whole thing was Dean Lunnington, and he's um, a therapist, musician, mm -hmm. well-read. But he, we were talking about empathy. Mm -hmm. And you work with very young children and have always resonated with young children, whether you're babysitting mm -hmm. or hanging out in parks or whatever. It comes down to this, like each of us has certain aptitudes or gifts that we're presented with, whether it's through our ancestral DNA, our environment, our upbringing, upbringing, what have you. But the question is, and Dean and I talked about this, is like singing, you mm -hmm. can carry a tune and your sound that you create is very enjoyable mm -hmm. to listen to by more than just your mama. Mm -hmm. I cannot create that sound. Mm -hmm. I am very empathetic and not as a badge of honor, mm -hmm. but my whole life I have a knowing of other people's, an innate knowing mm -hmm. of other people's knowing. Mm -hmm. No, let me start over. I've always had an innate knowing of what other people are feeling and to a certain degree what they are thinking mm -hmm. that I feel makes me empathetic mm -hmm. do other people have that awareness to the extent that I have it I know there are people that have a much stronger connection mm -hmm. to it and I know people that don't have close to what I have mm -hmm. as an experience with empathy mm -hmm. Is empathy something, a level that we can aspire to, mm -hmm. to expand? Is it something we're born with, like the gift? I, I you know. Do you think, I think of kids that you work with, I'm, and do this, they this all espouse the same level of empathy? Yeah, and this is where I'm coming from. When I say, and I, I believe this wholeheartedly and can say this as what feels like fact in my heart, working with young children, because I work with kids that are two to five years old, you see in the five-year-old range where some of that empathy has been tamped out. And, Do and all the two- and three-year-olds exhibit the same level of empathy? I mean, every single person is differently, but at a fundamental, the two- and three-year-olds and even the five-year-olds able, extremely empathetic because, like I said, think about it. I, I'm talking, we're not, I'm not even talking philosophical, I'm talking biological. A child without means to communicate verbally to their parents relies on the empathy of whoever is for taking survival. care of them for their survival. And that's a skill that you're born with that can be tamped out systemically. We're about to get a, um, they're picking up our washing machine, so Harry might go crazy. But that's all I'm saying is that I believe it to be biological fact that empathy is encoded. And there's so many things that happen to people and it's not people's fault that their empathy gets turned off and they have to shun it. But... There goes Harry. You know, it's not a podcast without... Yeah. It used to be Ruby and Harry. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying, I believe, and I believe is the route that we need to take to reach... I'm just talking about it as a compass. I'm talking about it as, you know... Is it a direction we can take? Yeah, and, it's, we sh and you don't like the word should, but I don't think apathy is the direction we should take. <laughs> I think that... Let's talk about a do not take. Do, should and not should and shouldn't to me why that why I have a lot of um, feelings behind that is because I think a lot of the reasons of why we're in this situation are certain groups people or individuals telling others what they should or should not do mm -hmm. and 
I feel as though there's being born a human, there's a certain bit of sovereignty in that, in that we're given free will mm -hmm. to find our own direction, or our own path. What you're saying, having empathy is an inroad to be able, Harry, come here, Harry. Harry, it's okay. I think that empathy is the inroad, inroad and the direction we each of us need to take to finding that balance of, like what you said, putting, yeah. putting your oxygen mask on. Mm -hmm. We can't just but some keep, people take that to the extreme and they put that mask and then on they, and they connect it to an oxygen they race tank forward. that's 500 tons <laughs> yes. and then they just ignore everyone else. There's, that's there's, not the way. Yeah, there's endless situations. There's those of us that were abused as children that we refuse the oxygen mask mm -hmm. because we don't feel as, we don't have a sense of self-worth. Yeah. We have a sense that we're here for others' pleasure, for others, mm -hmm. what's the right word? For others' exploitation? Maybe. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but yes. Well, and that's why I notion that I don't fault any individual for a lack of empathy or a, a shunning of it because it comes from context. Everything is contextual and context-based. You know, I just, if you ask me to sum up everything I've learned from Che, which is kind of how I got on this whole entire rant. It's not a rant. You know, whatever. That's just what I'm kind of getting at. Yeah. Is we, once again, we could have a three hour long podcast where we talk about capitalism and we talk about, we could talk about everything. We talk about resource extraction and talk about how all these are tied in with empathy as well. And, and, you know, the American dream and all these things, but really at the base of it, all I'm trying to say is, is that just love. We have an inherent, <laughs> inherent capacity as creatures on this planet. Everything does for empathy and we collectively lost our way in a lot of ways collectively we are each of us are born into the human experience as individuals yet i strongly believe each of us are uh, what's the word each of us what's the point of existence why are we here each of us are not challenged but each of us are asked to find a way back to unification, mm -hmm. to the recognition that in fact we are all one. Mm -hmm. We are not existing as individuals. The way to that is not through empathy. empathy. <laughs> no, and I and I Which agree. Is a norm, a I agree norm. with you. Is a norm. My column is called "Just Love," <laughs> not that I'm defending myself. Um, I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, so we didn't talk. About the open mic, that's fine. It's happening. Tomorrow, it's happening if you tomorrow. Want to come to the third floor of the Feder First Federated Church in South Berwick, Maine. I think there are currently See some of your community members. Twelve sing artists. Songs. Mm -hmm. Something um, like that. We're gonna do a little bit of donations to the food pantry. Mm -hmm. If you you'd like to bring a non-perishable item. Yep. And we're also going to do a bake sale for letters of love. Which is Che's organization, which we didn't talk about, but it's a project she started a long time ago, aimed at reconnecting unhoused people with their loved ones and people who are struggling with estranged loved ones. And 
allowing people an opportunity to express their feelings through writing and send them off into oblivion if they don't want anyone to read it that you can just put it in the trash but giving people a space a table with pens and paper to write down you know I'm behind things that. they're struggling with and I think love exists in many forms and many layers and the fact that in order to love you have to have this physical contact or connection I think it's a falsity I think mm -hmm. we need to realize that we can love without we can love with healthy boundaries mm -hmm. and I think that is part of yeah. the empathetic approach is knowing that we don't have to endanger ourselves mm -hmm. to make someone else feel loved yeah and the and that's sort of the empathetic approach on the other side of the coin by Che is you know allowing people the space within themselves to tap into their own empathy and, and you know work through their spurn and their hurt towards people who have maybe closed them out due to their addiction or their unhousedness or whatever it may be is is op cracking open you know the sort of things that harden around us to make us feel apathetic and, and you know stepping out of fear into and love fearful and yeah giving giving people an opportunity or you know making space for not even giving people people always have the opportunity making space for people to engage with their life in a more empathetic way when they can but I think allowing yourself to love yourself mm -hmm. is difficult for many but also essential yeah. for all um, so we're going to do a wrap but I want you to play just a tiny bit of one of your own original mm -hmm. songs oh gosh and I'm I'm very thankful to have this time with you we're about mm -hmm. to go on our annual pilgrimage to the beach, beach walk. our winter beach walk um, and I'm looking at all the pictures of the wall where you're little and you're and listening to the men coming to take the heavy laundry machine. We've had, we've had a bit of a go. The washing machine broke, the boiler went down. There's always something. Life is a struggle. Oh. Um, but I'm loving having our connection over 3,000 miles through your music and the sound bites you send me throughout your day and the pictures. You're an amazing ph photographer. You're an amazing artist and musician and and I'm going to say that you're a pretty good human being. And I'm, I'm very proud of I you. I love you, Honor. Me too. <laughs> and I love you. Thanks, Mom. You love me back? Yes, I love you. <laughs> what would you like to play? <laughs> one of your own originals to carry us out. I'll play a little bit of the one that you like. I love them all. <laughs> I want you to sing. The magic's in your voice.
You're welcome. I think you do more for me, though. Have a have a happy new year, everyone. And we hope to see you tomorrow night at the first, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> the first Federated Church in South Berwick at 7 p.m. first annual Letters of Love South Berwick. Open, Open mic. mic. Everyone's welcome. Mm -hmm.